Luke chapter 5, and we're going to go back to some verses we looked at last Sunday and look at them from a different perspective. I want you to think of this phrase. You probably heard someone say it in some form or fashion uh, during your uh, Christian journey, but uh, blessed to share. Have you ever heard a phrase like that? That we are blessed to share. I believe that one of the greatest lessons that we can learn as believers is that the Lord blesses us so that we would use His blessing in our lives to be a blessing to others. In other words, that we would be a conduit through which His blessings would flow from the throne of heaven into the lives of those who are in need. And so the question for us then as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is that we we just need to analyze ourselves and ask, am I being a conduit, am I being a blessing to the people in my life who desperately need what God wants to give them? For the last three or four years, we've been reading through the Bible uh, annually. Many of you have joined us in that endeavor. Many of you are in that journey even this year. And so if you are reading the Bible this year through with us, then this past Friday, you read the story that I'm going to begin with this morning. It's a story about someone taking what they've been blessed with and sharing it with others. And so tucked way back in 2 Kings chapter 7 is a story involving four lepers. Now we've already talked about leprosy and a man being full of leprosy in our a journey through Luke chapter 5. Here are four other lepers in 2 Kings 7 who are in a desperate situation. They have, as a nation, been experiencing famine. Uh, uh, they are part of the ten northern tribes known as the kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern two tribes known as the kingdom of Judah. If you know the story there, uh, Israel, when it was a united kingdom, was split under Rehoboam's leadership uh, or failure to lead. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. He was a terrible leader. And so the ten northern tribes rebelled against him. That was largely led by a man named Jeroboam. And so he led the ten northern tribes to the north away from Uh, Rehoboam in the south, he set up a a, a rival government. He even set up a rival religion, a rival approach to worship. In fact, in doing so, he had two golden calves cast, and he set those golden calves up in two places, in Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel, the land of Dan, and in a town called Bethel, or Bethel, as we would say in our English. In fact, if you go with me to Israel, the next time we go, I will be able to take you to the place in Dan, it's an, arch, it's an active archaeological dig there in that national park in the upper part of the tribe of Dan. It's right there next to the Lebanese border, and we can walk the trail about a mile up through the woods, and we'll come to that archaeological dig where they have uncovered the very altar upon which the sacrifices were made and the platform where that golden calf used to reside, and worship was offered to it. And because of that worship, because of that idolatry, judgment was brought against the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so what's happening here in 2 Kings chapter 7 begins in 2 Kings chapter 6 through all of this idolatry. And so God brings a famine upon upon the nation, upon the land. And so you've got uh, people starving to death. In fact, the Bible tells us that they were so hungry, starvation was so pervasive, that the people were eating donkey heads and the dung coming from doves. Now, you've got to be pretty hard up for that. You know, sometimes you may go to the grocery store, whether it's Sam's or a regular grocery store, and, and you walk through the meat aisle, and you see some very exotic type of things like a beef tongue and oxtail and other things that, I'll be honest, I'll be like, 
I will eat that when I am hard up, and that's the only thing on the menu. And I'll eat about anything, but I'm not eating that stuff if I don't have to. So they're eating donkey heads and dove dung. They're so hungry. In fact, there's two women who had such dire situation going on that they decided to eat each other's sons. So there's cannibalism going on because of the starvation. Famine is on the land due to the judgment of God. In addition to that, God has instituted and brought Syria against the northern kingdom. And so you've got King Ben-Hadad outside with his army about to lay siege to Damascus because of all of this. And so here are these four lepers outside the city walls who are also experiencing the effects of famine and the fear of a, of a rival nation coming against them. And so they're at the point of no return. What do we do? We stay here, we die. We go over there, we die. And so they decide, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians and see. Perhaps they will be gracious to us. Perhaps they will feed us. Whether or not they do, I, we know our situation here. It's death. We go over there, they don't do anything for us. It's death. So what's the worst that could happen? We die. So let's go over. Well, they decide to go over that evening. They get there to the camp of the Syrians, and what they find is, is that the camp is deserted. There's no one there. In fact, the people had just picked up and left in a hurry, and in doing so, they've left everything behind. And so the Bible tells us what happened. There was a loud thunder, and so the, God caused the, the Syrians to interpret that thunder as the sound of a mighty army coming against them. So they began to think that the Israelites had surely hired the Hittites and the Egyptians, and now chariots and an army are coming against them. And so they beat a trail back to their homeland, leaving everything behind. The four lepers walked in. It's like they hit the jackpot. There's food, there's gold, there's silver, there's clothing. They begin to feast, fill their bellies. They're gathering up gold and silver and clothing. They're taking it outside the camp and I guess burying it in the ground or in caves and coming back in for more. And all of a sudden they begin to realize what we're doing, it's not good. We're four lepers. We can't even go into the town. We can't even use the stuff that we have. We can't even sell it. People won't even come to us. They begin to realize what they are doing is not good, not be necessarily because of the fact that they can't go in the town, but they also begin to realize, hey, our countrymen are hungry as well. Our countrymen are in a dire situation as well. And so what we're doing is not good. 2 Kings 7, 9 says it this way. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. You know, as we read that story, we are reminded that those of us who have experienced the goodness of God have a compulsion, have a necessity to share that news with others who need to hear it. You see, we dare not keep good news to ourselves. Doing so would just simply not be right. Instead, as Christians, we want to and really we must share that good news with those who are in desperate need of hearing it. And that's the case, that's the situation that Levi is in as we come to Luke chapter 5. Levi is a man who's in a dire situation. He's a sinner. He's like all people. But he's also an outcast in his own nation. And so he's in a desperate situation. Jesus touches his life, changes his life, and he wants to share that immediately with his friends and with his families. And so if you've got your Bible, Luke chapter 5, let's just read verses 29 through 32 and uh, look at this from a little bit different perspective than we were seeing last Sunday. Luke says this, 
And Levi made him, that's Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we've already seen as we've walked through a good portion of Luke chapter 5, especially uh, in the last couple uh, Sundays, we have talked and mentioned various times that in the story of the paralytic, the only person who actually responds to Jesus is the man who's been paralyzed. And so I think what Luke is doing is he's using that as a catalyst to kind of springboard into what and why the gospel changed Levi's life. And so here's what's happening in this paralytic story. Jesus does a miracle and everybody is in all of it. Everybody's glorifying God for it, but no one other than the paralytic man looks at Jesus and says, what you've done to him, I need you to do to me. And so the Pharisees didn't do that. The scribes didn't do that. The crowd that was watching didn't do that. Only the paralyzed man was changed by Jesus, even though they all saw the miracle. And then Jesus walks out, verse 27, after this, after the failure to recognize that this man's greatest need is my greatest need, Jesus, I need you to do both. After this, Jesus walks out and sees a tax collector in the tax booth, a sinner in his sin, and calls him to himself. And so in that, in that scene, in this act, Jesus is demonstrating his commitment to missional living by taking this, his good news to the tax collector. You see, Jesus was living on mission. Luke 19.10, I shared it last Sunday. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's living on mission in the Gospels. Jesus is living on mission even today. As the word of God is preached, as the word of God is shared, as Christians share the gospel with others, Jesus is on mission. He is living missionally. Likewise, we see in Levi's life that he quickly learns that if Jesus is living on mission, I as a follower of Jesus also need to live on mission. And so the first thing that Levi does, verse 29, is he makes Jesus a great feast. But it's not just a feast to honor Jesus, it's a feast so that he can bring his buddies who need to meet Jesus and hear from Jesus and be changed by Jesus to come and to be introduced to Jesus. And so Levi is demonstrating a commitment to missional living. This despised sinner, think about it, who had tasted the grace of God, throws a party to celebrate and to introduce his friends to Jesus. His actions, as we read them here in the text, teach us that a believer who has tasted the grace of God does not want to go to heaven alone. We want to take as many people to, to heaven with us as we can. We want to see as many people come to faith in Jesus as we can. We want to see their lives changed as our lives have been changed. 25 years I've known Jesus. That's a monumental number. That's one of those figures that you, you make a big deal about. Jesus, 25 years ago, took a, a religious kid and showed him that it's more than just being religious. It's about knowing Jesus in a personal relationship. So here, Jesus provides a fresh, or Luke provides a fresh perspective on missional living through the teaching of Jesus Christ, through this picture of Jesus changing this man's life, and this man then going and modeling that before others. Three viewpoints 
on missional living that I want to share with you. I believe they're on full display in this passage of Scripture, and I want to share them with you practically this morning. First of all, the believer who is living missionally intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently takes the gospel to sinners. You say, that's a long statement. That's a statement we've been using for a number of years. I don't say it all the time, but we introduced that statement probably four or five years ago, and it's intentional, obviously. We're using the word intentional. We believe that as we look at the gospel, as we think about the Great Commission, it is an intentional thing. It is a strategic thing. It is a creative thing. And it needs to be an urgent thing in our lives. It needs to be an urgent aspect of how we live. You see, this is a phrase, as we've been using over the last several years, that rightly portrays how we as Christ followers should approach living in a fallen world. That we are intentional in the things that we do. What is the Great Commission passages? Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, there are others in the Gospels. All of them tell us the same thing. They all give us this picture of being intentional, of being strategic, of being creative, of being urgent with the message of the Gospel. They tell us that we are to passionately tell others the good news. Why? Because Jesus passionately came to the cross and died for our sins so that we could experience life in him. So when a man or a woman, a child, it really doesn't matter, when a person finds acceptance with the Lord, that new believer naturally wants to celebrate. We're going to baptize this next Sunday because there's been some people over the last few months as we've been down here who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we're going to publicly declare that through baptism. That's part of our celebration as Christians. But when we come to know Jesus, we just can't help but tell other people. And that's where Levi is, is at in this situation. He's come to know Jesus, and he wants to tell as many people as he possibly can. He wants to speak of the Lord's goodness. And so what does he do? He throws a party. He invites his colleagues, his friends, probably his family members, and he's intentionally inviting them to this place, this dinner, this banquet, this retirement celebration, so that they can hear and see and meet Jesus Christ. But he's not just intentionally strategic. I mean, I believe he's kind of thinking about this. I want to celebrate Jesus. I want to celebrate these difference that he's made in my life. I want to intentionally go to my friends. How do I do that? What's the strategy that I ought to use? There might have been some better strategies, perhaps, but we know the strategy he used. So it must have been a really good strategy. Why? Because it's practical. It's easy. We celebrate all the time. People will come to such a thing, right? So he throws a party, invites his friends. He knows Jesus is going to be there as the honored guest. And so his people, his friends, his colleagues, his sinful buddies are there strategically in this setting so they can meet Jesus Christ. It's a creative thing. Even in the ordinary, it is a creative way to share the gospel. Even in this routine thing of life, it is a creative way to share the gospel because people like to celebrate. But here's the last part of that. There's an urgency in his desire to throw this party, to get his friends before Jesus. Luke here gives us the impression that he did not waste any time in throwing this party. Luke doesn't tell us that a week later, a month later, a year later... 
He throws a party. It's almost like it's instantaneous. Jesus has changed my life. I am no longer a tax collector. I'm no longer going to walk in this lifestyle of sin. And we're going to throw a retirement party. And I want to tell you all as buddies what Jesus has done for me and why there's a change in my life. There's an urgency there. He understands that we need to get the gospel to those who are dead in sin and trespasses. So for us, as we seek to live missionally, that means that, that, that word missionally is just the idea that I understand the Great Commission, the gospel calls me to be on mission. So that's just a way to say I'm living on mission in my life. So as we live missionally, are we intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently sharing the gospel with our sinful friends and a sinful world? I use that word intentionally, sinful. The, the adjective there. We need to understand that we are all sinners, right? We are all sinful people. See, a person may be religious. A person may appear to be good. They may not be the, the worst of the worst, but it doesn't matter what level of sin we may have when we put those parameters there, not God. But we may not necessarily look sinful, whatever that looks like. But the Bible tells us we have all sinned and fall short. So we all need a Savior. We all need a Christ. We all need the gospel. We all need the blood to cover that sin, to atone for that sin, to pay for that sin, so that we might be forgiven and brought from death into life. And so we as Christians must live missionally with our intentions, with our strategy, in our creativity, and urgently sharing the gospel with all people in all places. It begins next door and moves out to the nations. So what does that look like in your life? What should it look like in your life? There's a second viewpoint. The believer who's living missionally understands that separation does not mean isolation. Separation does not mean isolation. Jesus here clearly had transformed Levi's life. Levi, or Luke tells us that Levi leaves everything, right? There's this clean, distinct break. He leaves it. He follows Jesus. There's a separation within his life from that which was unholy to that which is holy. And so the description here means that this break transformed him. But it does not mean that he forsook those who are part of his older life. I want you to get that in this passage. When he leaves the tax collecting business, he doesn't leave his tax collecting friends. Why? Because he understands they need exactly what he needed. Five minutes earlier when he didn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and now he does, he got to experience the grace of God. So he knows they need that in, his, in their lives. He doesn't lead or leave them. He doesn't isolate himself from them. He throws a party. He invites them in to hear from Jesus. And in all of this, we read that the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble to the disciples of Jesus. They're asking, why are you hanging out? Why does Jesus, your, your, your rabbi, why is he eating and, and, and drinking and partying with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the thing we need to see in that is Jesus understood, Levi understood that when the gospel changes my life, it also needs to change the person next to me. And if I isolate myself from the person next to me, the gospel can never move over that bridge of relationships into their life. Why? Because it's been broken. So we got to keep the relationships open. But they believed in a concept of 
The idea here of, of holiness meaning a complete separation from that which is sinful. And now on one level, this is true. Think about it. Just as darkness has no fellowship with light, in the same way, sin can have no fellowship with the holiness of God. Right? That there is no fellowship there. That, that's why when Jesus shares the parable of, of the man named Lazarus who has died and is in hell and he's longing for the tongue of his mouth to be quenched with water and he's wanting someone to go tell his brothers about that, Jesus basically says there's no way that anybody can pass from here to there because there's a chasm between the two. There's no fellowship, no connection between the holiness of God and the wickedness of our sin. And yet there's a catch, uh, there's, a, there's a connection. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've done the one thing God said don't do. And then they try to fix that. And then when they are asked about it, they're blaming. So this is a convoluted mess going up in Eden here. And yet in all of that, we see very vividly God in his holiness coming down to man in his sinfulness, not saying, hey, clean yourself up and come to me. God in his holiness comes to the evil of man and makes a remedy. He says, come to me. Adam, where are you? Adam, come out from the bushes. Adam, where are you? Who told you that you're naked? Who told you what was going on in this? Uh, did you eat of that forbidden tree? He's asking all of these questions. It's a picture of walking a person through the gospel where they understand their sin, their need of forgiveness, their need of redemption. And God walks Adam and Eve to a place where they are willing to lay that all down and receive forgiveness and receive redemption. And he makes a covering for their sin. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, there is a distinction between the whole of God and the wickedness of our sin, and yet in the midst of that, it doesn't mean that God has isolated himself from us. Much the different. Jesus has come to man, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we want to do that in our own lives. As Christians, we want to do what Levi does and engage sinful people, lost and sinful people, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to keep the relationships open. Paul understood this whole concept. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then. You would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul's call here for separation is not from a Christian, or it's not between a Christian and a non-Christian. Paul's call for separation is between the Christian and the so-called Christian who is pursuing sin. But he doesn't say that as a Christian, you need to insulate and isolate yourself from the things of the world, or I should say the people of the world. He's never saying that. What he's telling us as Christians is to go out into all the world and to proclaim the gospel to go. We separate ourselves in our holiness. We do not isolate ourselves from the sinful people who are in this world. Now, in that, we need to understand a couple things. First of all, you need to know your limits and temptations. 
So as we take a lesson from Levi's, we try to pursue people where they are, right? Levi's in the tax booth. He is doing sinful things. Jesus engages him there. We want to do the same thing. We're not asking people to clean themselves up and, and, and become a Christian. We're saying, hey, come with me continue this relationship, hear what I have to say. And so we're allowing people to be who they are in their sin while trying to call them out of that. And in doing so, it can get dirty sometimes, right? You may be around people that use colorful language. They may drink things that you don't drink. They may do things that you don't do. They, their lifestyle may be completely different from you. It may be actually be oppulsive a, a, a to you. And yet we want to keep those relationships up. So what do we need to keep in mind here? First of all, know your limits and your temptations. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, if you came out of a lifestyle of alcoholism or drug addiction or sexual addiction or, or, or something like that, you probably don't want to go with your buddies after work to the bar to kind of throw a couple back. If you come out of that lifestyle. I'm not saying that's sinful. You, you make your own judgment call there whatsoever as far as what you do with alcohol or whatever. But if that is your vice, if that's your temptation, you never want to give the devil a foothold in your life. But you definitely don't want to break down the relationships with the people who have that vice. Keep those avenues of communication, those relationships open so that you can be a conduit through which the gospel can flow into their lives. And so you want to avoid any setting that gives room for the devil to lead you astray and harm your testimony, but you want to keep the avenues open for the gospel. Separation without isolation. Number two, keep a redemptive purpose and goal in mind. That's going to help you there. So in whatever you're Whatever avenues you're using to engage with the gospel in people's lives, always keep the redemptive purpose and goals in mind. You're not doing these things just so you can simply be a Christian and live worldly. This is not a license to sin. I think we can become guilty of that so many times. Like, well, look how mature I am in my faith. I can do all of these things, and, and I don't have any conviction over it. Well, you might need some conviction over some of the things you're doing, perhaps. What's your purpose in all of that? Is your purpose to go and hang out with worldly friends just so you can hang out and be worldly? Or is it you want to leverage your relationship for the sake of the gospel so that they can be transformed by Jesus? If that's your goal, great. If it's not your goal, if it's, not, if it's only you leveraging this opportunity as a license to live sinfully with other sinners, then that's not where you need to be. So what's the goal in mind? What's the purpose in mind? We want to be separate in our holiness, but not isolated from the sinful people around us. How does this look in your life? What should it look like in your life? Unfortunately, this distinction here is going to lead us to a third viewpoint. And so the believer who's living missionally expects to be misunderstood by the religious. I've seen perhaps some of the facial expressions in that last point. Uh, not to necessarily make this point, but just we may wrestle with this a little bit, right? This is not conventional Southern Baptist old school thinking. Like, this is what the gospel life looks like. This is what the church looks like. Come in here, you look a certain way, you say a certain thing, you do a certain thing. That's not New Testament Christianity as you see it in the Bible. And so as believers who want to live on mission, we need to understand and expect that some people will misunderstand what we're trying to do. Some people will misinterpret the, our approach to evangelism, the purpose behind all that. So think with me. 
Just as the Pharisees and the scribes here grumbled over Jesus attending Levi's party, religious people may fuss at times about our perceived worldliness. Pastor, I can't believe, you know, I came into that rest, and this has never happened. This is a hypothetical situation, all right? Before you think something, it's hypothetical. But just imagine this. Pastor, I came by, and I, you know, I walked in the restaurant the other day. I saw you were at lunch, and, and man, there was like three beers on the table. I hope, Pastor, you weren't drinking. If you know me, I don't drink, can't stand the taste of it. So it wasn't mine. But I, I'm, you know, I just respond to the person. You know, I was there, and uh, a couple guys I've met at the gym, and we're just having lunch, trying to really build a relationship with them. And they like a beer when they drink, or, or they like a beer when they eat a, 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 a hamburger. And so we're at this restaurant. They had a beer. Where we're, you know, some games on the TV, and and just casual friendship type thing. Really trying to bridge those relationships, hoping one day I can have an opportunity to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And like, Pastor, I don't think you should do that. I, I think that's a bad look for you. It might be, but in this situation, my purpose and goal would be, I want to leverage these relationships God's given me in whatever avenue they're coming from for the sake of the gospel. And so whether or not you come in and you see a Christian brother or sister at a restaurant in a situation that you don't think is good, don't jump to a conclusion there. It could be that they're leveraging that opportunity for great commission purposes. Here in this situation, we would love to read in this that the Pharisees and scribes recognize Jesus here with these sinners, and they've seen the transformation in Levi's life, and they're cheering him on, saying, glory to God. Jesus, look what you're doing in Levi's life, and now you're doing it in all of these people's life. But instead, these religious people look at Jesus and say, how in the world can that man who says he's holy hang out with such sinful people? Man, have we ever been guilty of that in our lives? That we think it has to look a certain way? Levi, in his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, gives us a, an extra sentence that Luke does not. So let's listen to how Levi puts it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. He says, but when he, that's Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. I desire, I desire sacrifice or mercy and not sacrifice. So what is Levi cluing us in on? I believe he's helping us understand that the Lord is much more concerned with sinners being transformed into worshipers than the form of worship. He's more concerned about a sinful person being transformed into a worshiper of God. The gospel changing that individual's life. So what Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating that we should not care about how a sinner looks, how a sinner speaks, or how a sinner acts. Jesus doesn't care about those things. He expects sinners to be sinful. He expects sinners to live sinful lives. So Jesus does not require Levi to clean himself up before experiencing redemption. He just says, come follow me, and he leaves it all. Jesus just wanted him to acknowledge his sin and turn from it. And that's what we see all throughout the New Testament. And when people hear the gospel in the New Testament, they're asking, what do we need to do? And the refrain is this, turn from sin and repent of it and trust Jesus. That's what Jesus was requiring of Levi. He wasn't saying, Levi, you're a mess. You need to go clean yourself up, change your clothes, get a new job, get a new lifestyle, get a different, definitely a new set of friends, and then come try and follow me. 
He just says, Levi, follow me. Come to me. And so as Christians, we must not do what these Pharisees did and require people to fix themselves. We dare not fall into the trap of requiring Christians or or sinners to appear to be Christian before we engage them with the good news. So this means we're going to go to sinful people where they live, where they work, where they play, and in all of those places, there's going to be sinful things going on. Sinful things that don't look, hopefully don't look like our lives. This means that when we gather for worship and when God brings sinners into our gathered worship times, our gathered instruction times, like this setting this morning, we're not going to require them to to look a certain way or act a certain way or say certain things to attend here, right? That, That means that if there's a homosexual couple that walks into our worship services and sits down in a seat upstairs, we shouldn't bat an eye at that. That's not an affirmative of their lifestyle. That's not an affirmation of how they're choosing to live their lives. But it is an affirmation of we need sinners who look and act sinful to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether or not they receive him as Lord and Savior, that's not on us. But we will lovingly embrace them as men and women created in the image of God in need of forgiveness because they're sinful just like I'm sinful. And they need the grace of Jesus just like I needed it. 25 years ago, right? That's what Jesus is demonstrating here in this text. Four lepers, four outcasts. The Bible uses leprosy often to demonstrate or to portray sinfulness. And so four sinful people sitting outside the camp, desperate, hungry, in need of help. They decide, to, they decide to fall on the mercies of their enemy. They go to the camp. They find it empty. God has created a monumental, miraculous victory in their lives. They walk in. There's food. There's provisions. There's protection. There's everything for themselves. They begin to gather and enjoy all of that. And in the midst of that worship, if you will, realize, man, what we're doing is not good. We need to go tell others. We need to go share this with our brethren. This morning we sat here, many of us in this room, and we have experienced the goodness of God. Jesus has radically changed our lives. We have been brought from death to life, from hell to heaven. What are we doing with all of that? What are we doing with all of that? God has, and I tell you this all the time, God has placed you intentionally and strategically in places of influence that I or our elders, our small group leaders, our deacons, other people in our church could never be in those circles of influence. But you're there. What are you doing to leverage the influence that you have for kingdom purposes in those scenes, those settings, those situations? Levi uses his opportunity. He uses his opportunity to introduce his friends, tax collectors and sinners, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christian, this morning, let's understand that Jesus wants us to intentionally, strategically, creatively, and with great urgency, leverage that in our lives. He wants us to understand that we should not just separate ourselves from sinful people. We need to be separate unto God, but not isolated from those who are not in Christ. And then we need to expect that people will misunderstand our choices and the relationships that we have. And in that misunderstanding, we should not look down on them, 
but we should lovingly help them understand what we're seeking to do, right? We should never thumb our nose up and say in a self-righteous tone, well, you just don't know what I'm trying to do. No, let's help our brothers and sisters not misunderstand what we're trying to do, but let's help them to come along in our gospel urgency to win our county and our region for the glory of God. This morning, sitting in this room, watching this online, it could be some, there are some, who need Jesus as Lord and Savior. You see, you're not the Levi reaching out to the tax collector. You're the tax collector who needs a Levi. This morning, Jesus has been just knocking on the door of your heart. Maybe it's been for some time. And he's saying, hey, you, you know what Levi needed? You need. And the sin he was in, you're in. The trouble he was experiencing, that's your trouble. The destination in his life, which is hell, separation from God for all eternity, that's your destination. But Jesus has come for you. And so this morning, the news that the Bible gives us is good news. You've been made by God for God. He loves you. He's calling out to you. He's pursuing you. The bad news is you're sinful. You're under the wrath of God. You're under the condemnation of a holy God. That's, the, that's a just thing. But the best news is that God, in his infinite love, has paid the price of admission for you. Something you could never pay. This last night, uh, obviously from Arkansas, my alma mater is the University of Arkansas, and so my Facebook wall has been just littered with the Garth Brooks pictures because Garth Brooks did a concert in the Arkansas Stadium. And so I've seen all these pictures this morning on Facebook of people I know that were at Garth Brooks' concert at the University of Arkansas last night. And some of their seats are pretty amazing, like down on the floor, right in front, somewhere in box seats. And so the first thought went through my head was like, how much did that cost? Wow, that's pretty impressive that you got that seat. But something far greater than a Garth Brooks concert is heaven. And the price of admission for that is Calvary. It's the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This morning, perhaps you need to give your life to Jesus and receive in, by faith his forgiveness into your life. So let's pray. Let's have a time of response. If you're a Christian this morning, the Bible has challenged you to be more missional in how you live, how are you going to respond to that? This morning, if you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, and the Bible has challenged your need for Jesus, how will you respond to that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the word that has depicted very clearly for us what Jesus has done for our lives through his death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you for the testimony of Levi and the change that Jesus made in his life that radically transformed him. And, and then we see him wanting to, to, to reciprocate that, not in dying for someone else's sins, but Lord, telling others what Jesus can do for them. This morning in this room, most of us are Christians. And Lord, we live and work and we play around people all the time that need a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's the person that lives next door to us. God, we've been challenged through your word to live intentionally and strategically and to be creative and, and to be urgent with the gospel. Lord, help us to put that into action. Many are already doing that. Lord, fan that flame even more. God, help us to realize that, yes, we want to be separate unto God, holy in our walk, but God, we do not want and must not isolate ourselves from sinful people. Well, that's who you came to seek and to save. God, we want to seek and to see them saved as well. So Lord, help us in all this. 
God, I pray for those in this room, maybe watching us online, that you're speaking. Lord, the Holy Spirit is moving in their hearts, and perhaps you've been doing so for some time, and today you're saying, today is the day you give your life to Jesus. I can remember for myself, 25 years ago, very vividly, the conviction I was under, the desperation of my heart and my soul. I can remember clearly what it felt like to just experience forgiveness for my sins. Lord, I can't say that every day since then, over the last 25 years, has been wonderful because, Lord, many times there's been strain on my part. But I can say the faithfulness of God has always been there. The love of Jesus has always been there. The acceptance and reacceptance of Jesus has always been there. So I just glorify you for that. God, I pray that would be something that someone here today would experience in their own lives. So Lord, help us as we stand and sing in just a moment. Speak and draw us to yourself. Lord, as you said to Levi, come and follow me. Say it to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.